This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all for joining us today. Uh, I'm really excited to, for our next keynote here at the event. And this is actually part of our Microcap graduation series uh, that we uh, put out there on my podcast, Planet Microcap. And it's it, the whole thesis on this is we want to showcase uh, companies that have started out as that small micro nano cap company and have taken and have really appreciated value to either being acquired for a high multiple and or are now in the that small cap arena. And uh, the gentleman joining me right now is someone who I've actually followed very closely. Uh, we, I've done interviews with him, geez, I think as far back as seven, eight years ago, he was a front cover uh, company on our magazine, the Microcap Review, and really since then has really taken the company to, to new heights, uh, now at, a, at the small cap range, and we're about to hear all about it. So joining me right now for this keynote is Barry Sloan. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of New Tech Business Services, publicly traded company, the symbol N-E-W-T on NASDAQ. Barry, great to see you. How are you doing? Robert, doing great. Great to be here. It's good to be healthy and live an everyday large. Absolutely. Now, well, look, I really appreciate it. And one other point that I'd love to make about our microcap graduation series, you know, sometimes we get the founder, CEO, the person who was there at the beginning, but, you know, it's, it's relatively rare, you know, and Barry, as you will hear, has been there from the beginning and still kicking and still rocking and rolling. So, you know, that actually takes me to my first question. You know, you, you founded New Tech Business Services in 1998. The uh, Yankees won the World Series that year, by the way. So let's, let's just make note of that. Uh, about 23 years ago, you know, what, what was your background prior? Did you know that you were going to be founding New Tech? And was this the dream? You know, I'd love to hear more. So I guess you always try to start at the beginning. Uh, as a child, my dad was a retailer and he developed a... Uh, a brand of hardware, gift, and appliance stores in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. So I got to watch him growing up in a retail mentality, working six days a week out of season, seven days a week in season, late nights. Um, and that had stuck, stuck with me throughout my educational and work life. Um, I did think I was going to go into the family business, but wound up uh, leaving the family business almost uh, immediately after graduating school and going into Wall Street. And I was lucky enough to cold call myself, cold called uh, onto a mortgage-backed securities institutional trading desk. That happened in 1982. So I was blessed to get into the mortgage-backed securities business just as it was taking off. And it was great background, great training. Did that for about 14 years or so. Pretty much did everything. And I say did everything. I sold. I was a sales manager. I created a commercial real estate loan conduit. Um, after doing that for such a long period of time, I wanted to build my own business. So I resigned from uh, Smith Barney as a managing director 
and uh, started New Tech out of a spare bedroom in a New York City apartment. And the thrust back then is the same as it is today, provide financial and business solutions to small and medium-sized businesses, independent business owners, and mid-market companies. So we go back basically to 1995 and um, we've been around for a while, developed a partnership with two other gentlemen in 98 and went on the American Stock Exchange in September of 2000. So that's kind of the, the background and the history. Very cool. You know, so when you originally founded New Tech, you know, as you said, and, and, I, and I think we can all agree, especially everything that happened in the last 18 months, you know, the problem hasn't so much changed. It's trying to get help small, mid-sized businesses get access to capital. But in, in your opinion, how has that changed over the years? So I think that um, as somebody that's been involved in the capital markets, literally from the early 80s to today, whether it's equity, debt, securitization, the markets keep on growing, expanding, and proliferating. And back in the early 80s, getting a residential mortgage loan, you went into a bank, they made the loan, they put it on their books. There was not really an active secondary market for that type of financing. Today, the Federal Reserve buys it in you know billions and trillions of dollars and puts it on their balance sheet. So I think that when we think about small and medium-sized business finance, it's growing. And we're seeing peer-to-peer -peer lenders, um, different types of funding sources and mechanisms to fund what I refer to as the independent business owner community. According to the Small Business Administration, there's 30 million businesses in the U.S. that are defined as SMBs, small and medium-sized businesses. It's nine out of 10 businesses, and it represents about 65% of the net new job growth. So when the pandemic hits, and a lot of these businesses are, uh, I won't say shuttered, but closed temporarily, all of a sudden, politicians, Washington wake up and go, oh my God, these businesses are employing almost half the country. We have to do something to support the businesses. We have to do something to support the workers. They created the payroll protection program. But I think the important note is this demographic is key to the growth of the U.S. economy. Uh, it's key to communities. It's key, key to wealth creation. SMB, small and medium-sized businesses, independent business owners are the heartbeat of the American economy and the American story. I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, just look at, you know, hosting events like this and wanting to showcase, you know, small micro nano caps, you know, more on the public side, obviously. But, you know, I, I agree with those sentiments. I can't even give a measure of how much I agree with those sentiments. Um, so then, you know, going back to those early days and launching new tech. You know, what, what would you say were some of the growing pains starting out? You know, I mean, what were they? Well, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I remember back, uh, you know, in our early days, myself, the other founders, we did everything, um, you know, including, you know, sending out private place memorandums. I can remember spreading them out all over the floor, stuffing envelopes putting them in boxes and literally walking those boxes to Kinko's in a snowstorm and dropping them off and making sure we got the last deliveries. Um, For those who don't know, Kinko's is where you make photocopies of things. Okay, right, just, make, just making yeah. sure. Thank you. You know what? It's, it's an interesting point to, uh, to make. Not everybody knows Kinko's. 
I think the name <laughs> still there with FedExpress because FedEx bought them. But yeah, that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was an entity. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Sorry. I gave no, it no, myself. you're good. You're good. That was funny. Yeah. So um, it's very difficult to start up a new business. And that is why most startups do fail. It's a high failure rate. You've got to have the drive. You have to have the constitution. And you've got to have that willingness to say, I'm not giving in. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Um, the plan is important. You have to make sure that the plan is well measured and balanced and that you've got enough leeway and cushion to expect the unexpected. Because the unexpected will always happen. But if you have a bad event, you got to be able to survive it and push beyond it. New Tech has survived the 0809 credit crisis. We've survived the pandemic. I believe that's because we're thoughtful, we think ahead, and we do always expect the unexpected. Very good. So at that time, you know, I'm I'm sure you had some competition out there. You know, what was what was kind of the key differentiator for you guys at that time that it, that really helped you get past those initial pain points? You said the magic word, differentiator. And, and that is extremely important. Um, you know, I recently was uh, reading an article of Barron's and one of the investors made a comment. He said, I only invest in companies that develop products where the consumer feels they can't live without the product, like an iPhone or an Uber or something of that nature, where today the product isn't replicatable, you need it, and you really get upset. Amazon. What would we do without Amazon today? We're all sort of hooked on it to a certain degree. And there isn't another company like Amazon or Apple, which is why they, they trade where they trade. But I think that, you know, from our standpoint, um, differentiating ourselves from others, how we do the business, what the customer experience is, the ability to deliver the funds to those businesses that needed to listen to their story. And in our case, we've got multiple products. We're a lender. We're a payroll provider, insurance agency, tech solutions provider, uh, electronic payment processing provider, both e-commerce, card present. So we do a lot of things on the new tech brand. That's a differentiator as well. Very good. I mean, what was what was that number one thing though? Like back when, in those early days when you were getting started that you saw had the most traction that you're like, okay, like we have all these other things percolating that I know we can add to our product suite but this is the thing that's kind of working great to start. And then we'll add those things as we continue to grow. What we saw that convinced myself and the other founders in 1998 to form New Tech was this large demographic underserved um, commercial community, independent business that needed finance and needed the solutions that the IBMs and the Oracles and the Microsofts Again, uh, are able to deliver their clients. So, what we wanted to be able to do is to provide that, and that's what we're doing today. We're giving really valuable, state-of-the-art solutions to independent business owners that can't afford to hire a CIO or a CTO or a, a great e-commerce solutions provider, or for that matter, go into a bank and get funding because that's not easy to do for these independent business owners. So we're we're providing them something if they can't get elsewhere. Um, I, I keep telling my staff, basically at the end of the day, you need to be there for the business owner when they want you, not when you want to go take them out for breakfast, lunch, dinner, or golf. And by the way, that's not our model. So we don't, we don't have salespeople. That was another thing. We 
when we built the entity, although we didn't envision there would be a pandemic, but what the pandemic has said, you're not making appointments. People don't want to see you. You're not going into their place of work. You've got to be able to deliver a solution remotely and get the opportunity without a salesperson. And that's how we're set up. So we actually were set up ideally for the current economic environment, which I don't think is going to change much. I think the business owners are busy. They don't want to talk to people between nine and five. They want you when they want you and you better be there. Absolutely. You know, I was going to ask you about it later, but you know, let's just, let's just get into it right now. I mean, um, you know, back in March of 2020, the company made several announcements on its involvement in providing PPP loans to small businesses via the CARES Act. You know, what's been the last 18 months like for new tech? I mean, this, it's beyond anything you could have imagined, I'm sure. March was extremely stressful, hectic, demanding. The entire company was working 24-7, no exaggeration. Um, Business owners were scared. The population was scared. Nobody knew what was happening. And the government provided a lifeline to business owners to A, keep the lights on and pay their staff. And they, they stood up, a, the SBA and the federal government stood up a program in 2020 that had never been done before from scratch. We therefore had to stand up, we had to be very nimble. So we created the software, the operational methodologies and it was, it was crazy. Um, but we, we did it and so far we've done over um, a $1.9 billion of PPP loans, 26,000 uh, business owners, um, moved 99% of them off balance sheet. So we made them, we sold them, we made money. Um, and we picked up 26,000 new customers that were currently servicing the loans and getting, getting them debt forgiveness. So that, that was, that was and has been a crazy time. It was incredibly satisfying. Still is to be able to let people know that you gave them the funding that allowed them to survive and them to pay their staff to be able to feed their families. Um, and now we're transitioning into um, some level of new normal, which we hope does normalize in, in full. We get out of this COVID craze. Um, but it was... Um, it was another experience. I mean, I'm 61 years old. I've experienced a lot of crazy stuff. That's probably right up at the top of the list. I was going to say, like, what was that? I mean, I think for all of us, it was March 11th, right? When, when the president made the speech, we're like, uh, like, here we go. I mean, you were in New York. I mean, well, I, I don't know if you're in New York at the time, but you're on the East Coast. So I'm in LA at that time. It was a completely different kind of experience. I mean, because the hotspot was on the East Coast at that time. So, I mean, Take me back to your mindset as a manager, thinking about your staff, thinking about your team, thinking about business, as just your own business owner. I mean, what, what, what did you do? I remember back in the beginning of February, uh, my chief compliance officer, I'm to be chief legal officer, said, Barry, this virus that's coming over from China appears to have landed in the United States, is affecting people, people are getting sick. I said, Mike, they're never going to close New York down in my infinite wisdom. I said, but if they do, we're going to be ready. So I called up um, our CTO and it was really hard then actually to get laptops, but we got refurbished ones, 250. Uh, we had 400 people in the company at the time. Got them, got all the software loaded, the VPN. So when that March 11th date came, boom, we were ready.
And we immediately shifted into remote work and we've got internet-based phones, um, companies still working 95% remote. We're gonna go back in September. I think we're gonna push that back to October. We'll make that decision probably sometime early next week. Um, but no, it was, uh, it was a crazy time. And um, I, I've been in Florida since uh, 2015. That's when I moved here. Um, I was commuting back and forth between Florida and New York quite a bit when, when the pandemic hit. I was here stationary. As a matter of fact, I remember in the month of February, I was everywhere. I think I, think I was up in the air 20 days. So it's like amazing. I'm not quitting, it's sick. But came back to Florida and I, I've been here pretty much ever since. I made a couple of visits back to New York, but they've been all fairly short. Okay, well, you know, we'll get to some more current updates relatively soon because the company has made a couple announcements over the last uh, couple of weeks here. But I wanted to get, I wanted to take another step back, go back in time. We're gonna, we're doing this like the last dance. You know, we show, you know, show the the little bit of the future, the current, and then you take it all the way back to get to get a better understanding of what's going on today. So, uh, you know, back in '98 or no, it wasn't '98. I'm sorry. Back in I think it was 2000. So. You know, why did the company then decide to go public? You know, what was that pro and con conversation like? And, and then what ultimately tipped the scale to going public as a microcap? So um, when I left Wall Street in 95, I'm working out of a spare bedroom New York City apartment, putting deals together, um, advising, consulting. And I met two other gentlemen and I said, you know what? They had different skill sets than I did. One was uh, an accountant, CFO type. The other, Jeff Rubin, serial entrepreneur investor. So I said, let's all put $25,000 into a limited liability corp, set up an entity, uh, and um, let's have a go with it. And we, you know, the focus obviously was the focus on um, independent business owners, middle market businesses. We didn't know what the vehicle was going to be whether it be a broker dealer, a hedge fund, private equity fund, who knows, we just, we didn't know. And to make a long story short, we found a, the economic development program that was in Louisiana and had just moved to New York called Certified Capital Companies. And we started to participate in those programs where we got tax credits from the states. So we had approximately four funds that we raised the money from, for and from, from institutional insurance companies. And two partners called me up, I was traveling and they said, we know you're not gonna wanna do this, but would you like to reverse merge into an existing public shell to go public? I said, sure. And they were like both shocked. They said, we can't believe you said sure. I said, what do you mean? It's well, we, we were sure you would say no. And I said, no, this is good because this gives us an ability to grow and raise capital. Uh, and they both said, well, you drew the short straw. you got to be the CEO. I said, that's fine. And um, we made the decision. And it, the, the business was called Rex Environmental. And it was trading on the American Stock Exchange. And in all things, they were in the asbestos removal business. They had one uh, investment in Rex Environmental a thing that's called Watkins Contracting. And they were in the business of removing asbestos from buildings. 
So as a condition of the close, they had to sell Watkins and they issued us 90% of the outstanding shares. At the time they kept 10, that was sort of the standard deal. We didn't negotiate it too hard. And um, we started trading on the American Stock Exchange after we got SEC approval in uh, September of 2000. So, you know, that was the old school version of today's SPAC, a reverse merger. And um, I remember being on the MX, you actually had a specialist, so you'd call down. What's happening? We used to trade 3,000 shares, you know, with a, you know, a $3 stock price, give or take. I mean, we first did a deal with stock was trading, I think like 50 cents. Then it zoomed up to like 11 and it went back. I mean, it was no, not sure a lot of rhyme or reason to the price changes, but we were in a very different business at the time, more raising money and investing in other people's businesses. That changed in 2003, which we can talk about. But um, I think the decision to go public was based upon the fact that it gave us greater access to capital. We were fine with it. Very good. Well, let's go there. So what, what was the reason to switch um, the, the business strategy in 2003? So, you know, in 1999, when we decided to do the transaction and the transaction ultimately consummated in September of 2000. Remember the stock market, you may not remember, I don't know if you were born then, but the stock market kind of melted down in March of 2000-ish. So there were entities like Safeguard Scientific, ICGE, I think, Internet Capital Group. There were a lot of public entities that really were venture capital incubators, which is what we were. And because we raised the money, we invested in businesses that were operated headquartered in the state early stage. So the market changed on us. And in 2003, we said, you know what? We're, we're allowed to, using these funds, we can own and operate the business model. So we turned from an investment company from the standpoint of investing in other people's businesses to taking the capital and developing what you now see today is this suite of services that we provide. So we really became sort of an owner operator and that changed in 03. So we um, acquired the SBA lender through the uh, non-bank um, SBLC license, current agency, payroll company, tech solutions company, and the payment processor. So using those funds that were in the venture capital arena. Very good. So another, you know, public company type of question that I have for you, you know, what, what was your thought now that you are this public entity, you know, what was your thought process when you were originally putting together your board of directors and has that changed over years? Um, it's a really good question and it's clearly changed over time. Um, prior to Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, they weren't the independent director rules and directors were allowed to be uh, paid for doing things. Um, and today, the regulators really look at directors primarily as risk governors only. Um, directors today really don't um, bring in business, they don't raise capital. I mean, they just, they're just really governors, which is important, by the way. Corporate governance is extremely valuable. Um, so, 
we've always had a five person board. I think at one point went to nine. Um, it's really hard to manage a board. I'm a chairman of the board and to educate a board and work with them and make them knowledgeable. Um, make sure they're never surprised. I, mean, I spend a lot of time with my board away from board meetings, just on the weekends, updating them on stuff and getting counsel when I need it. You know, as a, as a public company CEO, you know, um, growing business over the years, how did you balance or how do you continue to balance the responsibilities as of a business operator and a CEO? Well, you say balance them. I think they're one and the same. Um, I think that, um, you know, as a chief, you're, you're really not just a chief executive officer, you're chief executive officer of a public company. And from that perspective, you've got to manage governance, you've got to manage reporting, you've got to manage your shareholders as well as the business. It's just part of the whole job. And, um, you know, I've been doing this for so long, I don't know what it would actually be like doing it privately. I'm so used to this. Um, you know, we have earnings calls, getting ready for them, getting the decks ready. Um, it, although it's uh, extra work, it, it is also a discipline and it does accrue in different ways. So no, I, to me, it's, um, I've been, as I said, I've been doing it for so long. I don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing it. Very good. So, you know, what was the thesis that you knew, you know, if I hit these inflection points, new tech will start to recognize the growth that, that in shareholder value that you always thought was there? Well, you know, I think, you know, we've re, I, I say this from the standpoint that um, we were a nano cap, we were a micro cap, we, we recently crossed over 500 million. I think we got close to 900 million, we might have hit it briefly. And um, that got us exposure because, you know, at $500 million, funds can look at you as a small cap. That's typically the important definition or designation. Um, you know, as, as you're obviously familiar with, you know, micro caps and nano caps, you know, you've got the important $5 stock price rule. Why five? Why not three? Why not 10? Who knows? It's five. Um, doesn't make a difference. It's funny. doesn't make a difference. The market cap is as long as it's five, but whatever. So these rules exist. I think from my standpoint, the half a billion dollar mark uh, was really big and, um, and important to us. Um, and when we hit that, we kind of hit an inflection point. Um, our excellent performance in PPP has been great for providing income and dividends as BDC. We pay 90 to 100% of our income out of the form of dividend. And we've got a heck of a lift. We've recently announced an acquisition uh, of a bank and that's a inflection point. And um, we, we're a company that does, um, it manages the business for all the stakeholders with a long-term perspective. So we don't take the easy road, we take the best road. So that um, has created a little bit of confusion uh, it's transitory change. And some of the investors have said, gee, I don't really understand what you're doing. Therefore, cash me out. Um, you know, as of today, our stock year to date is up 50%. So we were up like 90%. And, you know, over 10 years, 
we were up a thousand percent. Now we're up 750%. So, I mean, from my perspective, I look at this, um, you know, with clear eyes, open mind, uh, never fall in love with a stock price or a situation. We're the same company we were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, and we just, we just make it happen. So I, I look at that uh, and I look at the, the progression of new tech from a nano cap to a micro cap to a small cap. And it is something I'm proud of. This is really, really hard. It is really, really hard. I mean, you appreciate that. You work with companies that are trying to get that exposure. It's just like running up a hill with 100 pounds in your back every day. Yep, 100%. I, I mean, look, it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not a job that you wish on your worst enemy. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, someone's got to do it, right? Someone's got to do it. <laughs> not, not just public company CEO, nano microcap public company CEO. Yep. Man, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. That's right. So my next question actually is, I mean, as you just alluded to, you know, the company just announced this acquisition of the bank um, very recently. I think that was just last week, actually. We're recording this on uh, August 10th. So I, I believe that was last week. Um, mm -hmm. But back in 2014, uh, the company decided to um, convert New Tech to a BDC, you know, business development company. You know, what was the decision-making process around that? And then is that now changing with this new acquisition? You know, I, I appreciate the question because that question is very relevant to the decision we're making today to make another transformative change. Um, so back then in 2014, uh, we had an $80 million market cap. Uh, we were shaking off the 0809 credit crisis. And um, it was hard for market participants to understand who we were, what we were doing, and the market was very accepting of business development corporations as an investment class. So we looked at it, and by the way, you gotta remember, we're in a, we have operating businesses, right? And BDCs, most of them are externally managed, we're internally managed, I'll explain the difference. And um, typical BDC is, you know, it's an exaggeration, but it's 20 investment professionals, 20 Bloombergs and a fishbowl, right? So that's, we're an operating business. We're our lender, which is what gives us the designation to be able to be a business development corp, um, has people in it. We originate loans, we underwrite them, we fund them, we service them, we sell them. So um, we were a very unusual BDC from the beginning. And when we decided to do the conversion, and you're converting from a 33-act, uh, what I refer to as a C-corporation, into a BDC, which is an investment company and a mutual fund. Most people don't understand that BDCs are mutual funds. They're like REITs and they're RITs. So mutual funds have to pay 90 to 100% of their income out. They can't borrow money past a leverage test uh, and they don't pay corporate tax either. It's a flow through. So created a whole new set of, it was a problem. I mean, we just had to climb that hill. So when we did the transaction, we did what we called a re-IPO. So we wanted to reintroduce ourselves to the market. And we raised some money with JMP and Ladenburg. And you know, we got hazed to a 17.5% discount from NAV plus the fee. So at $12.50, we do the deal. 
three, four months later, stock's at 18, right? You work it, make it happen. So we're kind of experiencing that now. And I say that we announced this uh, acquisition of acquiring a bank. So people are going, what do, what do you know about a bank? Why are you becoming a bank? It's like, wait a minute. New Tech is the same company that it was the VDC and goes, it's just a different structure, corporate structure. And by being in that bank structure, we will then have depository services. We will be able to increase our leverage because in a BDC, you can't go more than $2 of debt to a dollar of equity. So in order to grow, you've always got to keep raising equity, which is dilutive. In a bank, I can retain the earnings. So, and now I'm funding my growth in a bank at a deposit rate of today would be 1%. So instead of selling share of stock and you know, 5% bond, which is where we're at today approximately, I now finance my growth through 1% deposit money. And I also diversify my lending base where I could do loans that are a little different because they have a lower cost of deposits. And importantly, we've talked about and have positioned the New Tech One a dashboard for business owners. So you're a business owner. I'm going to give you a dashboard for your deposits, your loans. You can make your payroll, your merchant processing data right on the dashboard. Visa, Master, Amex, this day, this year, this day, last year, this quarter, this year, this quarter, last year. All your website traffic analytics right on the dashboard. I'm gonna have all your organizational documents right on the dashboard. What are your organizational documents? Operating agreement, leases, insurance policies, employment agreements, all stored for you. Everything I'm talking about, this isn't imagined. These are all assets that we have. So they're all gonna be wrapped and pushed to you. And now when you go look to do your banking, which you do daily, couple of times a week, once a week, you're going to see that whole new tech one dashboard. It's cross-selling, cross-marketing, communication, significantly improved. So if we've got um, 70, 80,000 paying customers. I have one and a half million dollar business referrals in my database. I get 100,000 a quarter that come to me new. We have a lot of people to talk to about all these wonderful products. So that's why we're electing to do this transformative change. And um, shareholders got you know spoiled. They love that dividend. We're paying all of our earnings out. So now we're gonna have to keep some of it because that's in the best interest of the company. And by keeping some of it, I generate, you clearly said generate high returns on equity, right? Uh, higher than B most BDCs do, which is why the stock price has gone so go, go crazy. But this is a better structure for shareholders going forward, just like the BDC was the better structure in 2014. And Barry, I, I mean, you mentioned this already, you know, in talking about um, coming out of the 08, 09 crisis, and that was some, you know, and then and then from there, the shift to the BDC. But I, I can't believe, I have to ask about that. You know, what was that time period like for you for new tech and, and how'd you, how were you able to kind of just get through it? Well, you know, 0809, uh, in my view, was more terrifying than the pandemic in that um, as somebody that worked on Wall Street and was very familiar with AIG, Hank Paulson, how 
banks were bought and sold. The concept of Paulson calling up Ken Lewis at Bank of America and saying, you're buying Merrill over the weekend. Or Jamie Dimon being told, you're buying Washington Mutual Bank over the week. I mean, buying a bank over the weekend? Like, what, what is that? That's just insane. That's like total panic. And, um, you know, the understanding of the fact that we just had this unbelievable overlevered society, particularly in residential lending, which was an area that I came out of. So for me, it was like, wow. Now, we all need to have an interesting memory recall. Do we remember the Obama Recovery Act where, oh my God, he was going to spend eight to $900 million billion in shovel-ready broad projects, 800 to 900 billion. I mean, they do that like in the morning here in Washington. That number was scary, okay? Biden is on his way to $6 trillion. And he's not even blinking. $800 billion. whoa, it's crazy. So I think that, you know, being aware of history, watching history, to me, the scary times are when there is no history. There was no 0809 history. There wasn't any. And, the, you know, the fear was, you know, going on the banks, um, you know, what's the asset quality like? And also it was a, it was an international crisis. It was not, you know, a U.S. domestic, similar to the pandemic. Um, the thing about the pandemic is, um, People look at it and it's it's terrible. People are dying, but I think intelligent people still understand. Um, and look, I'm 61, so it's not like I'm not a target here, right? I'm, it's not like I'm, you know, 20 years old. <laughs> the point is, intelligent people look at it and go, "Yeah, this is really bad. It's terrible, but it, it's not going to wipe out all society." And you know, over the history of life, we have these plagues that plague the world. So um, we'll get through the pandemic, 08, 09. Let me say this. The scary part about 08, 09 was the Fed primarily cleaned it up, right? We can't do that today. It can't be 08, 09 today. I mean, when I say that, what are we going to do? Buy more bonds? What are you going to do? Go to, you know, what are we going to give people money? I mean, or penalize them for saving. I mean, there's no, almost no more tools in a tool chest, except wheelbarrows of money to buy a basket of, you know, to buy some bread or, um, you know, another bunch of Draconian things. They've got to start to unwind this. This is a very bad pattern. So one and nine was bad, but God forbid, um, we have, you know, a run on the dollar or something like that. Americans, Americans don't think they could ever be Argentina or Brazil. They just don't study. When did when did the idea of changing the structure start to kind of percolate? Because obviously this wasn't thought of yesterday, right? You know, the, the, so what, what, the, the 2014 what, change or the current change? The current change. Um, well, see, we've always thought that being a bank was the right place for us to be in. But we weren't this big, we didn't have this capital, 
We didn't have the management team. We didn't have the infrastructure. Uh, Robert, I have 450 employees. I do business in all 50 states. We just did 25,000 PPP loans. I've got state-of-the-art technology to acquire customers and put loans together, make payroll, do insurance, do tech solutions. So we are, to the day, we're very well prepared for this. Now, somebody said to me, why do you want to do be a bank? Banks are really bad today. Now, banks are undervalued today because the yield curve is flat. And people look at banks and they go, they regulate it. Well, that's called buying low and selling high. <laughs> BDCs are in vogue because interest rates are at zero and people want a dividend. So that's why this makes sense. You've got to have some foresight, look forward. Do you use a Sony Walkman? I hope you don't have an AOL account. And I hope you're not going to use a payphone this afternoon. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I do. Wait, I do. Oh, I was going to. <laughs> I have an AOL account. I have a Yahoo account person. somewhere. But you get, you get the drift, right? It's like. 100%, yeah. You got to change. No, no one's using MySpace. <laughs> Except Tom. Tom. Tom's using MySpace. <laughs> but, you know, so. My, my next question then for you, and, and this is kind of, it's kind of a similar-ish question that I've already asked, but in a kind of different way. So, you know, um, as you know, because we've done interviews over the years, you've been in the magazine, um, there's that balance of not just being the public company CEO, but also having to go out there and tell the story, you know, um, where, you know, how, how did you, when, when you had to do that, how did you balance the focus on, you know, company performance versus now going out there and, and telling the, the new tech story to the investing public. You know, how, how, how did you think about that? Some people hate doing this. I actually like it. Um, so that's one good thing. It's not like this is torture for me. Um, and, you know, the question you really asked is, Barry, how do you prioritize? And, um, I think I'm reasonably good at figuring out, you know, how to stack that deck of cards and how to put enough time into um, explaining to the investor base what we do and then managing the company. Also, you tend to work six or seven days a week and make it happen. But if you don't do both, you shouldn't be a public company because investors need to hear from you. Uh, as to who you are, what you do, as well as what you see down the road and what you've seen over the last couple of quarters. I do both. Yeah. I mean, that's a quick follow up to that. I mean, what's been, you clearly love being public company CEO. Let's be frank here. You know, I, but what would you say has been the hardest part about your job as a public company CEO? You know, what are, what are some of the things you come up against? You're like, all right, I really don't like doing that. Or it was just difficult in general. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people go, you're the boss. Well, frankly, I don't really feel like I'm the boss. I gotta, I gotta get consensus, right? Because you can be the boss today and you can be on the, on the street tomorrow. So uh, you get consensus from your shareholders, you get consensus from your board members, you get consensus from your staff, you gotta be a leader and a manager. And if people aren't buying what you're, I'll use the word selling or positioning, 
or um, suggesting, you're out. So um, the most important part of the job is you're replaceable every single day. You got a report card every single day. The people that don't think they have a report card every single day are the people that fail in this occupation. For me, I run every day like it's my last one. And um, I'm never looking at my clock. I'm never figuring out, you know, when am I going to go play golf? When am I going to play? It's not what I do. Um, but I think the, the hardest part does relate to the fact that you've got to get consensus. And, you know, you know, I could say, you know, getting out of nano cap or micro cap to be small cap. And the other thing that's interesting too is the world I think has gotten increasingly more cynical. Um, and that cynicism is probably somewhat deserving, but to me, that's a little frustrating in that, you know, I think I'm a straight shooter. I tell it like it is uh, tremendous track record but you still got to keep, keep selling yourself. And uh, when I say that, and I use the word selling yourself, I think it's really positioning yourself and explaining what you're doing. Uh, and if you think that doing it one time is enough, you're a fool. It just, just doesn't work. You got to do it time and time again. I've had meetings, for example, with, institutions and they're they're like flat line dead for six or seven years and then you go in and you have a meeting and it's like everything's flying timing is everything their goals are your goals maybe they've seen something you've done that they were impressed or they know you did something with somebody else but i mean and that's part of what we do you know proving and demonstrating that that you're good at it so um you know, building any business, whether it's a hot dog stand or a cleaning service or a business like we do, it just takes time and takes a lot of hard work. There's no, very few people are Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates uh, and Steve Jobs. And we all know Steve Jobs got fired and, you know, he had to, the role of world when, you know, his company was close to being bankrupt and he was about to get bounced out. But they were smart enough to follow their pride and have them come back. They realize they made a mistake, but it's, people don't get that. People, people don't understand, I mean, particularly, you know, younger people, it's like, oh yeah, guys making a lot of money, it's great. I mean, I, I would assume some people are, you know, just find a, <laughs> find, I, I don't think any of these people I mentioned weren't hard workers to get to where they had to get to. I doubt it. Absolutely, absolutely. No, when you say that you need to do it, keep going over and over again, I'm reminded of how often I see your face on commercials all the time on, uh, ev on every major financial news. <laughs> so if there's somebody that practices what he preaches, I I'd say it's this man right here. Um, so, you know, another question that I always ask for, for this series, and I'd love to hear your comment on this, is, is uh, guidance. You know, talk about how you think about guidance. Do you give guidance? Uh, if you don't, why not? And if you do, you know, what, what's been some of the benefits and advantages to doing so? Um, why should anybody invest in you if you're not willing to project what you believe you can do in the future? I mean, 
So people that say I'm not giving guidance, that's ridiculous. I mean, I'm just sorry. I mean, I, you know, and I, and I say that only to the standpoint that, you know, and we're in earnings seasons now, so this is relevant. Um, what do you mean I can't like project? Well, what if you're wrong? Well, <laughs> what if I'm right? Or for that matter, um, whatever you put out there, the one thing I can almost guarantee is it won't, won't be exact. I mean, it never, it's never exact. It's impossible to be exact. Um, so companies that won't give guidance, that's a, I, I wouldn't invest with them. I wouldn't give them a nickel. I mean, I, and I'm not suggesting that I have to say this is the number, but you got to give a range. I think I'm, I think we're going to do this over the next course of the next year. And this is why we think you got to show some conviction. So we give it, um, we're, we're pretty generous with it. You know, when I say generous, we typically, as a BDC, we did it in, October, November, we give a year's worth of guidance when most BDCs were quarter to quarter. Now, from my perspective, it's like, hey, don't gauge me quarter to quarter. That's silly. Don't gauge me week to week, or I me, mean, particularly given all the things we have going on. Gauge me over the course of a year. And we've been good at it. And we've, you know, typically met or beaten our guidance, and it's worked that well. Very good. All right, so I got a couple more questions for you before I let you go. I know you got a busy day here. So um, one of my final questions for you is what, what, what advice do you have for CEOs of private companies that are potentially looking to go public in general or as a microcap or now new CEOs of publicly traded microcap companies? First of all, you know, we've talked about CEO and you know, there's a CEO founder, there's a CEO hired gun, there's a CEO that's, you know, a little bit in between. So I would say, just from the perspective of, I'll call it the owner CEO, yeah, I'll answer it that way. What are you, what are the goals? In other words, what are you trying to accomplish? And what's the time frame that you're trying to accomplish it? And then what's the easiest way? Uh, when I say easiest, best reward with least amount of risk. That has got to factor into whether you're public or private. That's really the, the, the deciding factor. Um, you say that um, I love doing this. I don't, I think I would, listen, I got to tell you, my, you know, my first job out of college, I was an assistant buyer, Abraham and Strauss. I love that job. I made $13,000 a year. I love the job. I mean, it's not the same job as this, not as sexy as this per se, but, you know, I think that when it, when it boils down to the decision, public or private, meaning the person's got to really decide what's the best thing for all the stakeholders and then roll it into the box. Um, being a public company is definitely not made out. It's not something that's made out for a lot of owners or executives. You know, there are a lot of if you don't like getting in front of people and talking to them and explaining what you're doing and sticking your neck out and being willing to, you know, hit and be hit, do not do this job. This is not the job for you because you're out there, you're sticking your neck out. You've got your, you, I get criticized constantly. I get second guessed constantly. I'm saying by everybody by everybody, nothing personal, by some of my closest advisors, by, you know, 
It's the way the world is. You got a pretty, you know, strong shoulders. That's somewhat true whether you're public or you're private. It's a little bit more intense when you're public. Couldn't agree more. Well, with that, you know, Barry, again, thank you so much. Where can our audience go and find more information about New Tech? Sure. So take a look at uh, stock symbol, NEWT. Um, the timing of this is, is really good because we are in a transformative uh, period of time. New Tech One, N-E-W-T-E-K-O-N-E is our website, newtechone.com. Go to the investor relations section. Um, we have done a call introducing the acquisition of the bank. And by the time you hear this, you'll have an earnings call and you need to listen. And I say that we are positioning ourselves as a technology enabled bank that will be entirely different than a, the banking industry that you know about. There's not going to be big bolted ceilings. There's not going to be, you know, big rooms with tellers and vaults. I mean, um, but importantly, we're a bank that's going to focus on this huge demographic of providing funds to small and medium-sized business. We're going to be a real tech-enabled bank, technology, and, the, and, and, and the, what I refer to as the bank of the future. So you'll be able to bank from your from your phone, from your desktop, all services, all solutions. Important. It's not just a piece of software. You're going to have the human being behind it. We're just not taking you out for golf or lunch or a Broadway play, okay? But on demand, when you need an expert in insurance or payroll or lend, you're gonna be able to get somebody on the phone that's working in a remote location, just as we're having this conversation today. No branches, no bankers, no BDOs, no brokers, tech-enabled bank, and really providing all the solutions that most of the banks today, they can't get out of their own way. They're too big and they're too cumbersome and they have a major legacy investment in people and real estate. We don't have that. We start with a whiteboard and we start with the technology that we've used as a BDC to take advantage of it. So we're dropping that BDC business right into a banking infrastructure. And we think it's, we think it's really exciting. Very good. All right. Well, Barry, with that, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next chat. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barry.